0: Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let the gentleness be known to everyone. The Lord is near. Good morning, and welcome to Wildwood on this third Sunday of Advent. In continuation with our theme this year of the Lord is our righteousness, the focus of this week is celebrating in that righteousness. As Dwight mentioned, sorry, As Dwight mentioned last week, the Israelite people at this at the time of Jesus uh, were living in a broken relationship with God. Having returned from their exile in Babylon a few generations prior, they no longer were a people governed by themselves, but have lived under the rule of multiple nations and have had to figure out what it means to live as a people of God, while being pressured to conform to the cultures of Persian, then Greek, and now Roman society. And it is in response to this forced conformity and cultural confusion that we hear the words of John the Baptist. The passage read from Luke this morning is one of the voice crying out in the wilderness, as prophesied by Isaiah, preparing the way for Jesus, for Jesus's righteousness and teaching to enter our world. John, having received the word of God through the Holy Spirit, is proclaiming what people need to do in order to live a good and righteous life. Thank you. Where was I? We see that in this proclamation, like Jesus, John's teaching for living rightly John's teachings for living rightly are focused on the relationships people have with each other, providing for the needy and supporting each other rather than exploiting each other wherever possible, which would have been customary within the Roman society they lived in. Despite the fact that John's teachings coincide with Jesus's and the fact that he gives hope to the people of the Messiah that is soon to come, This passage from Luke's gospel is full of words of judgment and condemnation and is seemingly unfitting for a day devoted to the joy of Christmas. But then again, maybe it's not? In recent years, I have grown quite cynical about the time in which we celebrate the birth of Christ. Every Every year around this time, I go to major shopping centers and encounter countless people who, like me, I've left their shopping until the last minute. And from the minute I enter the parking lot until I get home, I am overwhelmed with a feeling of anxiety due to irate people honking and yelling at other people who don't know how to drive or more appropriately, won't let them drive as fast as they want, or people getting angry with cashiers who have very little. Oh. Very little power to give the customer the item that is no longer in stock. In addition to the experiences like this, I usually see posts on my Facebook feed to the tune of, I'm saying Merry Christmas this year instead of Happy Holidays, share if you agree, arguing that it is my right as a Christian to celebrate the birth of Christ at this time of year, and I don't care who I offend in doing so. As a result, I often feel disappointed at our blatant misunderstanding of the life of Christ in our so-called celebrations, and I'm often left with the thought of, what's the point? Why do we celebrate at all? Two years ago, I unintentionally started a new Christmas tradition for myself. Ever since the book, The Shack by Paul Young came out, I had wanted to read it, but for some reason, I didn't mostly out of curiosity in response to feedback it received as being an incredibly controversial Christian novel. And then while at mom and dad's place one day, a couple of years ago, I noticed the book sitting on uh, one of their bookshelves, and so I asked if they would mind if I borrowed it. Since both of them had already read it, they were fine with me taking it, and so... In the fashion of all good intentions, I transferred it from their bookshelf to mine, where it sat unread for many months. But then, during the Christmas season that year, I decided to read it. For those of you who have not yet read the book, it is an incredible story about the experience of a man by the name of Mackenzie Phillips. The story begins with Mackenzie, or Mac, collecting the mail from the box at the end of his driveway in the middle of a snowstorm. In the mailbox, the only item he finds is a note addressed to him saying, Mackenzie, it's been a while. I've missed you. I'll be at the shack next weekend if you, get, if you want to get together. Signed, Papa. Mac is filled with rage at this note, thinking that someone is playing a cruel trick on him. As his own dad died when he was only 13 because Mac himself had poisoned him and the only other entity that was referred to as Papa within his household was God. The other aspect (coughs) of the letter that angered Mac is the only (coughs) shack that Mac knew of was the one in which the clothes and blood of his youngest daughter were found in four years prior after she had been abducted while on a family camping trip. In Mac's mind, there are two explanations for the note. Either God really sent him a note and was inviting him to the shack for some bizarre reason, or his daughter's killer is playing a sick joke on him and is enticing him to come to the shack for a confrontation of sorts. In the end, Mac ends up taking the bait and returns to the shack that for four years has been a huge symbol of pain and sadness. Initially, when Mac gets to the shack, it is, it is exactly as he remembered it, with the stain of his daughter's blood still on the wooden floor. But in his exhaustion and from, from the drive, and because of his depression in relation to the place, he falls asleep on the floor. A short time later, he wakes up realizing there is no one there to meet him. He gets up and decides to go home but as he is making his way back to the vehicle, he watches as the scenery around him changes from winter to summer and when he looks back at the shack, he sees it completely transformed into a beautiful cabin with smoke coming out of the chimney and the smell of delicious baking ruminating from the kitchen. Mac then returns to the cabin and is met with an incredible weekend in which he spends an intimate relationship with God, the mother and father, Jesus and Sarayu or as we more commonly refer to her as the Holy Spirit. Despite the incredible loving presence of all aspects of God throughout the first day and a half of the weekend, Mac finds himself continuously trying to suppress his anger towards God. But in the afternoon of the second day, after going for a walk across the lake with Jesus, Mac has a meeting with another manifestation of God, <clears throat> Sophia. Sophia. Sophia, the Greek word referring to wisdom, is the ability to judge correctly and to follow the best course of action based on knowledge or understanding. And so Sophia in this context shows up in a courtroom in which she and Mac discuss the core of his pain. In their discourse together, Sophia explains to Mac that he is in the courtroom both on behalf of his children but also for judgment. To begin with, she asks him which of his children he loves the most. And in his response, he says that he does not love any of them more than the other, but differently. To put it more succinctly, he says it in the way that God has been describing their children up up until that point, in that he he is especially fond of each of them. Being more than satisfied with this answer, Sophia then moves on to the item of judgment. But it is not Mac's judgment that she is referring to. Rather, she tells Mac that he is to judge God and all of humanity. Initially, Mac says that he is unable to judge. Sophia says that it isn't true that he, like so many of us, judge people without thinking of it every day. She then eggs him on until in his rage he admits his belief that the man who had harmed his daughter is worthy of his judgment and that he should be damned to hell. Subsequently, this man's father who messed him up, too, should share in that damnation. Sophia articulates the thought process that Mac had Mac had, had many times before this weekend that the brokenness of humanity goes all the way back to Adam in the beginning and even further back to the God who created the world. And since God knew before the world that this would one day happen to his daughter, then God was the one to blame. She then says that if it, he is so, if it is so easy for him to judge God, then he should be able to judge the fate of humanity as well. And to put it into the perspective that people project on God, she says that he must decide which two of his children to get to spend eternity with God in, and which three would be damned. And after a short argument about the matter, Mac eventually says that he cannot choose for any of his children to suffer such a fate and please that he be allowed to suffer in their place. Sophia's response to this, or to Mac, is that he, just like Jesus, has judged well in that he judge that despite the times that his children might have angered him embarrassed him or caused him pain his children were worthy of being loved even if loving them would cost him everything despite having come to this conclusion and despite sophie's sophia's affirmation of his judgment he still has difficulty understanding why god wouldn't stop what happened to his daughter to this sophia says She doesn't stop a lot of things that cause her pain. Your world is severely broken. You demanded your independence and now you are angry with the one who loved you enough to give it to you. Nothing is as it should be, as Papa desires it to be, and as it will be one day. Right now your world is lost in darkness and chaos and horrible things happen to those she is especially fond of. After hearing this, Mac admits that he does want to trust and love God again, but he is going to need some help. And Sophia responds in saying that, that sounds like the beginning to a journey back home. Throughout the rest of the story, Mac finds finds his time with God to be one of comfort and joy, and through God's help is given opportunity to reconcile with his father and the pain of that relationship with himself from the guilt he felt about his daughter's death and he is able to reconcile with God and begin to strengthen his relationship with them. I remember wishing after the first time I read this story <clears throat> that God would somehow come into my life and give me an experience like the one Mac had, one in which I, would get, I could get to meet God and see God in new ways and begin to rekindle my relationship and love with God. And shortly after this thought, it dawned on me that through my reading of Mac's story, that is exactly what God did for me. As I said earlier, this book has become a Christmas tradition for me. I read it again, or I read it again um, for the second time last Christmas. Each year as I read the book, I bring to God the things that I let get in the way of my relationship with God over the course of the year, and again, work at repairing our relationships. And as my exam season comes to an end this Friday, I'm anticipating my note from God saying, Scott, it's been a while. I've missed you. I'll be at the shack next weekend if you want to get together. Signed, Papa. As Sophia mentions to Mac in this story, we live in a broken world full of pain and destruction. And it is because of Because we choose to live separate from God's love or we chose to live separate from God's love and will that our world is in that state. But despite the pain we cause God in this plea and this decision, God is unwilling to judge us as anything less than worthy of being loved. And so in the form of Jesus, God came to us and taught us how to live rightly, not only so that we might live in loving relationship with each other, but also that we might restore our relationship with our heavenly parents. In our worship this morning, we celebrate God's righteousness that came into our world over 2,000 years ago. But we also celebrate the righteousness of God that comes to us in a continuous effort to help those worthy of being loved to learn to love in return. In closing, I leave you with the words of the Apostle saying...